Robots Radio presents... In 1999, star Bruce Willis introduced us to The Shyamalan Twist. In 2020, we try a fan favorite among budget bourbons. The movie is The Sixth Sense. The whiskey is Evan Williams 1783. And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1999 horror slash drama, The Sixth Sense. Brad, this movie is celebrating or just celebrated its 20 year anniversary. And it's kind of crazy to think that it's been two decades since this movie came out already. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating to me that it's been 20 years since we all got to together see dead people. <laughs> it's true. And now, Brad, I have to think that this is one of those movies that you would have seen before we hit record today on this podcast. Yeah, honestly, this is a movie that I feel like even if you haven't seen it, and yes, Bob, I have seen it, but like, if this isn't a movie that you've seen, you've heard of it. Like, th this is one of those movies that like probably introduced the term, hey man, no spoiler alerts, into our vocabulary. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like this movie has kind of gone like in waves of how people appreciate it or don't appreciate it. You know, it came out and it was, I mean, an absolute juggernaut at the box office. It was nominated for Best Picture. Shyamalan was nominated, you know, for the script and for directing. And then after a few more movies, everybody thought that Shyamalan was kind of a one trick pony. And, and people kind of started to go back to the sixth sense and say, is it really all that it's cracked up to be? And I feel like we're kind of in a period now where people are starting to reevaluate it. And I was really excited to watch it again, Brad, because I don't know that I have watched this movie all the way through in one sitting since probably like 2000 or 2001. I mean, I've, I've caught pieces on TV. And once you've seen it, everyone kind of knows the story. But it was really refreshing and really nice to be reminded of what it's like to kind of be immersed in this film. Bob, all those people who became Debbie Downers on The Sixth Sense are dumb. This is an absolute masterpiece. I mean, I don't give a rip if you know the twist or not. This is just a really, really good movie. It's well made. I think the cinematography is absolutely spectacular. We can get we can spend probably the rest of the podcast talking about Haley Joel Osment's performance. I mean, this is a phenomenal movie, Bob. It's so, so good. It, it really is. It's just it's such a good movie. And I think one of the things that I noticed on this watch is that the twist ending that everyone talks about and that I I just watched a YouTube video talking about how this movie is, is pointless from a screenwriting standpoint because everything is only validated by the twist ending. I actually completely disagree. I, I think if there's one thing about this movie that I was surprised to learn on this rewatch, it's that the twist ending is actually probably one of the more unnecessary parts of the film. Like, I, I think the movie really, really works just from a plotting and storytelling standpoint, even without that twist ending. Yeah, and I almost feel like the twist ending is just kind of a little, like, bit of bonus material at the end of like, 
oh, and by the way, if you were paying attention, he was dead. Because the story of this movie is not about Bruce Willis being dead. The story is about Cole, you know, a young boy who can see and talk to dead people. And it's about how he finds purpose in the midst of a horrifying ability. Yeah. And and Brad, I think this is probably a good time to kind of naturally segue into Brad Explains. For anyone who hasn't seen The Sixth Sense, which I'd, I'd be pretty shocked if uh, many people in our audience haven't seen it. But can you walk us through the plot of the film, The Sixth Sense? Yeah, honestly, Bob, we probably need to go back to the start and put in a big old siren you know, warning if you haven't seen the movie yeah, this yet. Is, this is a, we already <laughs> spoiled the ending, so any, anyone who hasn't seen it has probably checked out already. Yeah, well, and it, I'll get into Brad Explains in a second, but I love that this movie has the two twists. You know, you have the twist of, I see dead people, and then you have the twist of, and by the way, you're also dead. I just, I, it's just so good. Uh, so, The Sixth Sense. It's about a child psychiatrist named Malcolm, played by Bruce Willis, who has a patient of his from years ago, you know, on the night that Bruce Willis receives this award, his former patient breaks into his house and ends up shooting him. And he shoots him kind of low in the gut, and his wife calls 911, and the movie moves on, and you see that he's moved on to a new patient that he's helping a young child named Cole. And as you get to know Cole, you realize that he has weird experiences, you know, throughout the movie, he seems to talk to people in a strange way. And as we move throughout, it becomes more and more apparent that he has uh, almost psychic visions of a sort. And he finally reveals to his, you know, psychiatrist, he sees dead people and that he actually sees them all the time. And, you know, the rest of the movie really turns into an opportunity for Malcolm to believe that Cole sees dead people and then help him understand what to do with this strange power that he has. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary of the film, Brad. And I think, you know, we're, we're obviously going to get into our analysis of the movie, but I think that's a really good sort of uh, surface level explanation of what you see on the screen. And what I was really surprised about this time around is the extent to which this movie really isn't a horror movie. And I think that when we talk about the sixth sense, we play up the sort of spookier elements of it. We play up the, you know, I see dead people scene. I was really shocked to discover that this is really just a drama. This movie is a a drama about people kind of dealing with their regrets and trying to find redemption for past mistakes. And the supernatural element is kind of sprinkled on throughout the film. And I think, you know, obviously there are scenes where it becomes the focus of the movie for small portions of it. But at the end of the day, it really is just kind of a story about this man and this boy finding resolution and finding peace in these chaotic situations in their lives. And the supernatural element really doesn't define the movie. I will say, though, Bob, as somebody who, you know, Film and Whiskey Nation knows, I'm not a horror movie person. The horror elements of this movie creeps me out a little bit, man. I'm not going to lie. Well, yeah, I mean, that's not me. to say that it, it doesn't have creepy things going on. But what I'm saying is, like, I would definitely put this in another category from, like, a straight possession movie or or most horror films, because I do feel like the thrust of what the movie is about isn't necessarily like there is a kid who sees dead people. It is an element that's added into the drama. But it, it for me, at least, it doesn't seem to, like, actually define the movie. The movie is a drama to me. Yeah, I would call it a suspense drama. 
Like, it, it definitely has elements of suspense that without them, you don't have the drama that you have. But it really is a story about this kid and how he kind of wants to be a normal kid but has these weird powers. Yeah. And and one of the things I think really highlighted that for me is that this famous scene where Cole finally admits that he has these kind of supernatural abilities where he admits I see dead people. That scene doesn't happen until like the literal halfway point of the movie. And I thought that Shyamalan did such a good job with building this sort of unease and tension And, you know, having seen the movie before, we all know where it's going. But I have to imagine that if you're an audience member in 1999 and it hasn't been spoiled for you, you're kind of watching Bruce Willis try to put together the mystery of what's going on with this kid. And he has these mysterious bruises and cuts and he's wondering if there might be some abuse involved. And it really did kind of remind me a bit of Jimmy Stewart trying to get to the bottom of this supernatural mystery in Vertigo. And then all of a sudden you get this element introduced that Cole sees dead people. And it's like the movie just kind of turns into a new genre or a new way of telling the story immediately. You finally start to see things from Cole's point of view. You start to see the dead people come up. But I was really shocked that that scene happened so late in the film. I, In my mind, it was like a half hour into it. And it's actually like 50 minutes into the movie that it happens. Yeah, I think that the beautiful thing about it is that, you know, we've talked before on the podcast about how Tarantino has this definition of like suspense of like the audience knowing something that the characters don't. And like, how long can you stretch that rubber band until it snaps? And I think that the thing that Shyamalan does here is he gives the audience an inkling that something is wrong, but he won't tell you what it is. And so you know that something is wrong, but you are A, not sure what it is, and B, not sure how long this rubber band can stretch before it's snapped. So I think he almost nails two aspects of it in the sense that you just have this eerie, weird, otherworldly sense like, man, like something's going on here. Don't know what it is, but it's definitely creepy. Yeah, there really is a suspense element. And yet at the same time, I think that what Shyamalan does so brilliantly in the first half of this movie is he's laying the groundwork for how this movie is going to pay off emotionally. Watching Haley Joel Osment, and I do want to segue into talking about the performances here, but watching Haley Joel Osment, especially in the first half of this movie, absolutely ripped my heart out. And in the first few scenes where you actually see what he's dealing with, with these dead people that are tormenting him, it's really, really disturbing. And not just because it's scary, but it's disturbing because Osment plays it so well. And he is constantly on the verge of crying. He's constantly on the verge of of screaming in terror. And I think that you really start to get a sense of the sort of emotional undercurrent of the movie being this sadness that everyone in the movie is feeling. You see it in Bruce Willis. You see it in his wife. You see it in Cole's mom. And you see it in Cole. And I I just really love, you know, looking back now on how the whole arc of the film is built. Those first 50 minutes, it's not like they're only being used to set up some sort of like scary payoff. And they are. I mean, they, they they're used for that. But they're building to something more than that, too. And I think for me, that's why this movie works so well, is that Shyamalan doesn't just end the movie with this big, scary climax and then, you know, let us off the hook. He gives us that sort of emotional sucker punch, too, in the last few scenes of the film. And it really pays off all the time we've invested with these characters. Bob, I think my favorite scene with Haley Joel Osment is when, you know, it's right after he has told Bruce Willis, hey, like, I see dead people, I see him all the time. 
And then Bruce kind of goes off and you see him, you see him recording into a recorder. Like he's got clinical issues. He might need to be hospitalized. Like there's major stuff. So like clearly Bruce Willis doesn't believe him. But then Bruce goes on a journey of his own of understanding that he actually is seeing dead people. And my favorite scene is when they're in the church and there's kind of a long shot down the center aisle and Bruce is standing on the left side and Haley Joel Osment is standing in the middle of the aisle. And Bruce says to him, hey, like, I'd like to talk to you about how you see dead people. And he basically tells, you know, Cole, I believe you. And Haley Joel Osment does this beautiful thing where he almost stumbles over to the pew and then like quietly sits down. And it's just this beautiful physical piece of acting where you almost can feel the weight of somebody actually believing him, of somebody actually sharing something that is deep and disturbing in their life with someone else. And for that person to relate to them, that little scene, it's like five or six seconds long, told me all I need to know about Haley Joel Osment as an actor. He is so, so, so good at what he does. Brad, like, I don't think it's an understatement, and I don't make statements like this very often, but watching this movie back last night, this might be one of the best screen performances I've ever seen from anyone, not not child actor. To hang a movie on an actor the way this movie hangs on Haley Joel Osment's performance, I mean, if you even had a above average to good child actor playing Cole in this movie, the movie does not work. It only works because we have the all-time greatest child actor performance in this movie. And you have to say something about the fact that, like, ostensibly, Bruce Willis is the star of the movie. Like, we're supposed to be experiencing the movie from his point of view, and yet this kid steals every single scene out from under him, and Bruce Willis very wisely underplays his performance because he knows we're not looking at him. We're watching this kid go... Like, just basically go to town with his acting performance, and he nails every single scene he's in. It's just, it's an unbelievable performance. He he just has this uncanny ability to command the camera no matter what he's doing. And one of my, one of my favorite things about this movie, and this is like hardcore meta commentary, and that, you know, Shyamalan couldn't have known when he was directing it. But I love that the kid that they pit against Cole in the movie, you know, the kid that fakes to be his friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, And all that. I love that they set him up as like this great child actor. Well, he thinks that he's a great child actor because he was in a cough syrup commercial and that Cole is a terrible actor and that, you know, he talks about how he's like, oh, all the other kids don't have any depth or anything. And like on a meta level, I love that within the movie, they set up this other kid as thinking he's a great actor against the greatest child performance in a movie of all time. <laughs> I mean, it's true, though. Haley Joel Osment was nominated for an Oscar for this movie. And to be quite honest with you, he deserves all of the Oscars for this movie. I cannot understate how incredible this performance is. And if you haven't watched this movie recently, just go back and and watch what Haley Joel Osment does, because... I mean, I feel like we always give a lot of credit when actors do the thing where they're like the only person on screen for, you know, or they carry a movie like Tom Hanks in Castaway or DiCaprio in The Revenant. What Haley Joel Osment is doing here is he's doing just as much heavy lifting as any of those actors do. And the movie is resting on his tiny boy shoulders and he absolutely brings it home. 
Yeah, there's like scenes where Bruce Willis is sitting in his living room ostensibly with his mom and he walks in the door from school and he stops and he kind of blinks a few times and stares and you can see him as a child readjusting to the fact that there's a dead person sitting in the room but I can't say anything about it because my mom is also sitting in the room. You can see the wheels in his head turning of how do I deal with this situation? How do I not freak my mom out? Yeah. Like, like it's just such a good performance. Well, and, and I feel like, especially in the early stages, the script needs him to kind of play different things depending on the scene because Shyamalan wants us to be in the mystery of it all. And so that first interaction he really has with Malcolm in his house He's kind of being played as like the creepy kid and you don't know, you know, is this something that's going on with him? Because his mom finds that letter that he writes with all the the swear words in it. And he talks about how he drew a picture of a guy getting stabbed with a screwdriver. And you're like, oh, this is a one of those creepy kid movies. And he plays the creepy yeah. kid super well. But then you immediately get that scene where he's at the dinner table with his mom and she's asking who keeps moving the bumblebee pendant. And you see him like fighting back tears because he knows the truth. He can't share it with her. And he knows that she's going to get upset with him. And he has to tell her anyway. He won't let himself lie about it. And just to see him going through these emotional extremes. And then even just a few minutes later, he is terrorized by a ghost, goes downstairs and says, Mom, if you're not if you're not too mad with me, can I sleep in your bed? And like just to watch those moments of emotion pay off. This kid had me in tears, like at multiple points of this film. And I think that's what's so wonderful about what Shyamalan allows the actors to do. It's not just about scares. It's not just about thrills. Every single one of them is followed by and supported by these moments of really deep human connection and emotion. And I think that the most beautiful aspect of his performance is that through about three quarters of the movie, you have Haley Joel Osment on full guard, full fear, full sadness. You have all of those emotions just being poured out of his soul. The payoff is when he's sitting in the car with his mom and he looks at her and you still see a little bit of fear in his eyes, but he says, okay, mom, I'm ready to tell you my secret. Grandma comes to visit me sometimes. Oh, that's very wrong. Grandma's gone, you know that. I know. She wanted me to tell you. Oh, please. She stop. wanted me to tell you she saw you dance. She said, when you were little, you and her had a fight right before your dance recital. You thought she didn't come to see you dance. She did. She hid in the back so you wouldn't see. She said you were like an angel. And and he goes on to tell her, you know, about how he sees dead people and how, you know, his grandma, her mom is telling her that it's okay and that she's proud of her every day. Like, that scene doesn't have that kind of a payoff if you have an average child actor. Right, and I think, again, I want to I wanna give credit to Shyamalan and his script here because it also doesn't pay off if you don't spend the first half of this movie allowing the audience to kind of sit in the slowness of it all. It's a really slow-moving film, and we have to observe the trauma that Cole is going through and that his mom's going through trying to be a supportive caregiver. 
And Brad, I'm going to be honest with you. That scene gets me every single time I watch this movie. Like I legitimately shed tears at the end of this film. And it's not the kind of movie that you go into expecting to have an emotional response to. Yeah. And we've mentioned her a few times, but I am going to give an award for best supporting actress. Tony Collette as Cole's mom in this movie is spectacular. The her ability to show motherly care and worry and emotion is stunning. You know, when she calls the other mom and tells to just that anger of tell your kids to keep their GD hands off of my son. And when the doctor, you know, director cameo with of M Night Shyamalan is like, "Hey, like this child service protective service person is going to talk to you we're worried about these these scratches she has that that moment of like do you think that i beat my son like something's happening and and we need help her performance is so good in this movie well brad we have a lot to talk about we haven't even really touched on bruce willis who again is is ostensibly at least the star of the film I do have some nitpicks with Shyamalan's script, especially in in the early going. I think maybe after we come back from the break, we can get into some of the, the few flaws in this movie because there aren't very many of them. But before we do that, what do you say we hit pause and we try this Evan Williams 1783? Let's get to it. So today we are checking out Evan Williams 1783. Now this is at least the second Evan Williams product we've had on the show, right, Brad? I know we did White Label. Have we done any others yet? I don't believe so. Uh, and I, I was kind of curious, is 1783 just their normal stuff that they put like a name on? No. It? So their normal stuff is just called Evan Williams. It comes with a black label that looks, you know, kind of similar to like a uh, Jack Daniels label. And then the, ne- the okay. next one kind of up from that in the line is the white label, which is their bottled and bond. And then the next one would be the 1783. Now, they call this a small batch bourbon. On the Evan Williams website, they say that no more than 200 barrels are hand-selected to go into their Evan Williams 1783. So uh, apparently we're getting the small batch here, Brad. I thought you got like 200 bottles out of each barrel, though. <laughs> you do. You do. It doesn't seem like a very small batch. No, it's like 40,000 bottles oh. per batch. <laughs> okay. Just just making sure my math wasn't, you know, yeah, crazy you, off. You know. So, uh Evan Williams 1783 is an 86 proof bourbon. So it I mean, it's watered down pretty significantly from coming out of the barrel. Um but it's not all the way down to 80 proof. They're giving us a little bit of spice, hopefully, on the front end of it. So I'm I'm kind of anxious to try this. I'm a really big fan of the Evan Williams white label. So I'm interested to see what this tastes like. Brad, have you ever tried this before? No, I, I am excited, though. With with such a small batch that they choose from, <laughs> it'll be really interesting to see, <laughs> to see the quality that comes out of it. Oh, I'm man. Just, I'm excited for their, like, ultra small batch that has, like, 150 barrels. Right, right. All right, so, Brad, <laughs> what are you picking up on the nose of this thing? You know, this one has some classic bourbon notes to it. 
I think that there's a little bit of brown sugar on the front. I am getting some fruit, maybe like a raisin or an apricot or something like that. I'm curious though, Bob, what do you think? So I will say that this is not the first time I've tried this, and I actually pulled it out uh, from the cabinet the other night in anticipation of today. And I don't know if it's just because it's kind of like cooler outside now and it made the temperature of the bottle maybe cool off a bit. But when I first poured this out the other night, Brad, it was like I didn't pick up any classic bourbon notes on it. It just smelled like uh, like spice and maybe some mint. And I was like, well, this is weird. Took a sip, absolutely hated it. And then just kind of like set it next to me as I watched a movie. And about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later, I remembered it was there and it had kind of come up to room temperature. And it was like completely different. So like I I have had many different experiences with this whiskey already. I will say that at room temperature, you're right, Brad. It definitely has some of those classic bourbon notes, uh, a little bit darker, maybe not so much caramel or vanilla, but I definitely get some brown sugar, some maple on this. I do get like a ton of oak on this. I don't know if you're picking up on that as much as I am, but it's like it's really spicy and I'm getting a lot of oak on the nose. Yeah, I mean, I do notice that oak you're talking about, Bob, but for me, it's not an overwhelming scent. I do like this nose, though. I think I'm going to give it a seven and a half. Yeah, I'm not super impressed with it. It just kind of smells like a standard bourbon to me. So I'll go ahead and give it a six and a half. But now comes the moment of truth, Brad. Let's give this thing a sip. Ooh, yeah. that's a little bit sour. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of this, Brad. A lot of those notes that I picked up on the other night when it was kind of chilled, I guess, are still carrying over at room temperature, and I do not like that. It is not very sweet at all. There's a lot of oak on it. It's kind of dry, almost like a like a tannin kind of thing going on in there, and I'm really surprised at how watery this is. Like It's almost like it doesn't really coat your tongue at all. It's like your mouth forgets that there's a whiskey in there. Uh, I'm just not impressed with this almost at all. Brad, are you? Mm, this is really gross, Bob. Oh, yeah. I don't think I, I, I don't think it's quite that bad to me. I you must be having like a really bad experience over there. Yeah, it's it's sour. I don't I don't know how else to put it, but it tastes sour hmm. on the tip of my tongue as it moves over the palate. I think I, I that note of apricot is really coming through, but it almost tastes like like a rotten apricot. Like it, it, it has this rotten fruit feel to it that I, I'm not enjoying. It's like sickly sweet in a certain way. Yeah, see, I'm not picking up almost any sweetness. It's like it, it is staying in that sort of dry. I can see how you, you would call it sour um, because it just kind of sucks all of the sweetness and the moisture out of your mouth. Like I, I'm not enjoying this. I think I'll give it I'll be generous. I'll give it a four on the taste. Yeah, I'm going to give it a three on the taste. I, I'm really struggling with this one. And then on finish, like I said, I, I think this is really watery and the finish is almost non-existent. There's a little bit of spice. It's a little bit dry. It doesn't really leave necessarily a terrible taste in my mouth, which is I'm kind of grateful for. But it's such a short finish and it evaporates so quickly that it's um, it's no bueno. I'm going to give it a four on the finish as well. I actually don't mind the finish a ton. The flavors that hit your palate to start, they actually finish decently well. It's not great, but once it's been, you know, off of my palate for a minute and I'm able to breathe in some of those flavors, it's not too bad. So I'm actually going to give this a five and a half on the finish. All right. And then overall balance, we're talking about nose, taste, and finish. Yeah, I don't really think this is a completely well-balanced whiskey. I thought the nose promised a lot of things that the whiskey is just not delivering on. 
I guess I'll give it a five, but I'm feeling kind of generous, I guess. I, I Nothing really stood out to me as good from this whiskey, so I'll give it a five. I'm actually going to give this a one on balance, Bob. I think that this is one of the least well-balanced whiskeys I've ever had. I mean, the, the flavors are kind of all over the place. The finish is decent. The taste is terrible. The nose is promises things that it doesn't deliver. I I am really struggling with this one, Bob. All right. So that brings us to value. Value is where we look at the price point and, and decide, is this something that we would pay for? Or is it overpriced compared to other things on the shelf? And a bottle of Evan Williams 1783 in the state of Ohio is actually only going to set you back $17.99. So this is our first sub $20 whiskey in, in quite a while. And I mean, Brad, it's kind of hard to argue against a whiskey that's this cheap. But at the same time, I know other whiskeys at this price point that are just substantially better than this. Yeah, I as soon as you said that it costs, you know, 17, 18 bucks, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Uh, And that's unfortunate because like you said, Bob, there's a lot of good whiskeys out there at the sub $20 mark. So I'm going to give this a five on value. I don't think it's the worst thing that you can spend $18 on. And in fact, this might be decent as a mixer, but honestly, as it is, just drinking it straight, meh. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same spot. I'll give it a five as well, because you're not going to get much cheaper than this for a fifth of bourbon, to be honest. Um, But even at this price point, Brad and I could both direct you to things that we think are, are just way better than this. So I'll give it a five as well. That brings my final score out to a 24 and a half, which if I'm being honest, Again, I'm in a generous mood. I think that's too high. I don't even think that this would kind of hit the halfway point for me. Brad, what are you coming out to? I am coming out to a 22 out of 50. All right. So that puts our overall score at a 23.25 or a 46 and a half out of 50. I mean, guys, this is just a subpar whiskey. I'm not a big fan. I know this whiskey actually has a lot of fans out there. If you like Evan Williams 1783, Please write in, call into our call-in line. Let us know what it is that you really like about this whiskey. Uh, but for me, it's it's just not doing it. Yeah, I would love to have a chance to tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> everybody, <laughs> everybody can be on my side now, on the receiving end of all of Brad's insults. That's right. Well, Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about something we both really seem to like, which is the sixth sense? So that was Evan Williams 1783, a whiskey that neither one of us liked uh, pretty much whatsoever. Yeah, I saw a dead whiskey, Bob. (laughs) They don't know they're dead. Do do you get it? I do. I do. I get it. (laughs) Let's get back into talking about the sixth sense. And Brad, we left off before the break, uh, having not talked about the movie Star, which is Bruce Willis. And I just I guess I kind of want to just get it out here in the open. Brad, what did you think of his performance in this movie? I think we should probably actually talk about Donnie Wahlberg. He's the real star. Look, man, we can we can joke about Donnie Wahlberg. He's so good in this movie, like, bro. He's really, really good, man. Like we can make fun of Donnie Wahlberg all we want, but like he legitimately I'm pretty sure he lost like thirty five pounds to play this role that's only five minutes of the movie. Yeah. And he just 
kills it, man. He's so good. He's you honestly don't know what's going to happen when he comes on screen. Yeah, the his voice, he brings it to this like high pitched almost whine the entire time that's just terrifying. I he is so scary in this movie. But it's time for us to talk about Bruce Willis. So sorry, Don. <laughs> man, I I don't know what to think about Bruce Willis. Because part of me feels like he was just turning in a very disinterested, boring performance. But for some reason, it absolutely works perfectly for this movie. So I'm kind of torn. Did he pretend to be disinterested for the character? Or was he just genuinely disinterested in this movie and just kind of turn in a performance? But it just like by happenstance turned out to be perfect. Yeah, I mean, Bruce Willis has some really well-documented, like, tantrums, and I guess he's really hard to work with. He has a big ego. Uh, There's a great video on YouTube of the director, Kevin Smith, talking about working with Bruce Willis and what that was like. And I've always wondered, like, how does M. Night Shyamalan get Bruce Willis to kind of turn off the I'm an action star switch in his brain and play these really, like subdued characters because he does it here he does it in unbreakable and then you know he did it just past year in glass and he really is playing against type and i have to wonder like what is this guy saying to him behind the scenes that that gets him to just like go somewhere that he never really goes as an actor and you're right brad like i don't necessarily know if it is a great performance because it is so quiet and subdued and he's really just there to be like in the background while Haley joel osmond shines but because it's Bruce Willis, I think we're all just like, wow, look at Bruce Willis, because it's it's so against what we're used to seeing from him. Yeah, I I literally was texting friend of show Jordan McCain about The Sixth Sense while I was watching it. And he just said, he's like, yeah, man, another Bruce Willis masterpiece. And like, I don't necessarily disagree with him because this movie is a masterpiece. And I, I do think Bruce Willis is really good in this, but I can't shake this weird, you know, almost a sixth sense of a feeling that he was just turning in a performance. He was just punching the clock. He he wasn't actually caring about the film. It felt like he was punching the clock at a, phoning a factory. It in. Yeah, he was phoning it in. I got it. I got you. All right. All right. Come, come on, Robert. All right. So, Brad, now that we've gotten that out of the way, I think I do want to get a couple nitpicks of mine kind of on the table here. It sounds like you think this movie is nearly perfect. And I do think that as the movie goes along, you know, once you really get into the supernatural elements and, and the movie starts picking up, it, it it moves like clockwork. But especially in those early scenes, I think you can really tell that M. Night Shyamalan was was young as a screenwriter and a director. And no scene stood out to me in a negative way more than the very first scene of the movie which is Bruce Willis and his wife coming home from some reception where he received an award as a child psychologist. And the way that Shyamalan has these two characters give us like backstory and exposition through dialogue, it was like it was so cringeworthy because especially the wife's character, she was only there to teach you about how awesome her husband was. And I I like I wrote down a couple of lines she said. She looks right at Bruce Willis and says, "I'm going to read your plaque." And then she looks into the plaque and she starts reading everything that's inscribed on the plaque. And then after it's done, she looks right back at him and like it completely sincerely goes, this is an important night for us. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm pretty sure that Tommy Wiseau 
wrote the first scene of this movie because it is like <laughs> it is so frustratingly bad. And like, again, I think overall this script is brilliant. I really do think that a lot of the dialogue works two ways so that once you know the twist, you go back, you listen to the dialogue again. You're like, oh, yeah, it has a second meaning. So it's really clever. But there are moments where I was just like, oh, man, like Shyamalan really could have used somebody to come in and kind of punch this script up a little bit for him. Yeah, Bob, I think that there are certain struggles with the script. But outside of that early scene that you were talking about, tell me a scene that really, really struggles. Because other than that first scene, I really feel like the script shines in this movie. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Brad. Like like I said, I'm nitpicking. You know, it, it's not a recurring thing that happens. Although I do wonder sometimes what it's like to analyze a movie on this side of the sixth sense versus being a person in the theater watching it for the first time in 99. Because I don't know if we give enough credit to how much this movie changed movies. After this, twist endings became a fad for a while in, in tons of horror movies and even in non-horror movies. And even now, like anytime a movie comes out with an ambiguous ending, there's always a theory floating around that the main character was really dead. And like, that's a theory everyone puts forth. And that was never a theory that happened before The Sixth Sense. Watching it now as a viewer who's had 20 years of conditioning that when I go into a movie and things aren't adding up, I'm like, oh, maybe someone's actually really dead. It's hard to look back at this movie and try to look at it with fresh eyes because it really did change the course of how we analyze movies even while we're watching them. Yeah, it's amazing how one movie can just completely warp the landscape of cinema for such a long time. Because like you said, there's still a sense that anytime there's a big plot twist, you you always kind of think to yourself, oh, maybe it was dead the whole time. I mean, I guess the only thing I can think of that was similar is that old TV show where the guy wakes up at the end of the TV show in the final episode and the entire show was a dream. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. About? Well, um, saying elsewhere. Yeah, and so that that would be the only thing that I can think of that was similar in the past, but you're right. The Sixth Sense just takes that to a whole new level of like, man, Bruce Willis was dead the entire time. Although, I'm going to be honest with you, I, I don't know if that was like the biggest twist for me in the movie. The The scene where he reveals that he can see dead people and talk to them was much more impactful for me as a viewer the first time I watched it. I want to tell you my secret now. Yeah, and, and Brad, I really think that 
that scene became so parodied in the years after this movie. Like every, you know, scary movie parody film, every SNL skit, they always referenced that scene. And watching it this time, I was like, why was this scene ever critiqued? Why was this scene ever made fun of? Because it's so powerful. And you're right. It it does set the movie on a completely different course. But even aside from that, like watching Haley Joel Osment speak through his torment in that scene, watching the tears kind of welling up in his eyes, watching the intense amount of fear come out in his voice as he shares that secret with Bruce Willis. It's like it is such a powerful scene. And it really made me question why we as a society decided like, oh, we should we should use this as the scene that gets made fun of for the next 10 years. Yeah, I guess for me, that scene is the perfect reason why I love this movie, because this movie isn't about a former child psychiatrist finding out that he's dead. This movie is about a young child trying to find acceptance to the fact that he has severe psychological issues and supernatural powers. You know, for me, the reason this movie has enduring value and is still absolutely amazing to watch is because Haley Joel Osment plays a child tormented by, you know, spiritual figures in his life so brilliantly. That's why I love this movie. That's why it's so in, has such enduring quality. And Brad, I would even go a step further and I would say that the movie isn't even necessarily about the supernatural stuff. You know, I kind of talked about this in the first half, but for me, like if you took all of the supernatural stuff out of this film and it really was just a story about Haley Joel Osment having some sort of thing that he needed to overcome, like he was fighting a mental illness or something. And Bruce Willis, as a child psychiatrist, was helping him through that. It wouldn't be a great movie, but it would still be a really effective movie. And I think that's why the supernatural stuff works so well in this movie, because Shyamalan's emphasis isn't on making you feel scared. He uses the scary stuff in service of like a bigger point. And this movie really is about human beings, whether it's Malcolm, whether it's Haley Joel Osment's character, whether it's his mom, human beings who are dealing with regrets, who are dealing with secrets, who are dealing with things they can't admit to themselves or to other people. And that's why that I see dead people scene is so great. You know, he he really lays out the whole plot of the film. It's these dead people don't know they're dead. They only see what they want to see. And in a way, I mean, that's a commentary on everyone in the film. They only see what they want to see. They're ignoring things around them. They're not speaking into these situations in their lives. And I think that for me, the reason the movie works is because he doesn't ground it just in the supernatural. He also really grounds it in the human emotion behind all of it. Bob, I think that is the absolute perfect summary for this movie and why it is so well received even to this day. And I'm really just curious, Bob, what is your final score for this movie? Because we've talked about it for a long time now. And to me, it seems obvious what kind of a score we should give it. But I really want to hear what you have to say. So I think you're probably going to be mad at me, Brad, because I don't I don't think I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. I do still have some nitpicks with it, and we didn't even really get into this, but the whole subplot with the Misha Barton ghost girl, it does advance the plot, and yet at the same time, it kind of seems like a detour from the plot. Like, they, they go on a little mystery hunting thing for a while, and I don't know how necessary that whole subplot was to the movie. And so there's little things throughout the film that I'm like, I don't know, like, is it a perfect movie? No, but you look at the impact it had on cinema... 
You look at how well it holds up after 20 years, how effective it still is, both as a thriller and as a really, really emotional drama. And I think I'm going to give this movie a nine and a half out of 10. Search your feelings, Bob. You know it to be true. This movie is a 10 out of 10. Like, I I was watching this movie. I think this is probably my fifth or maybe sixth time watching it. And as I paid attention to the technical details of the movie, I was just blown away by Shyamalan's brilliance in this movie. And then when you just kind of take a sit, you know, you sit back and just enjoy the movie for what it is. This is one of the most enjoyable, thrilling, spectacular movies that I've seen. I absolutely love this movie, and I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. It's so, so good at what it does. And you're right. This movie has left such a deep cultural impact on American cinema that you just can't overlook how important it is. Well, there you have it. Those are our scores for The Sixth Sense, but we want to know what you have to say about it. So please get on social media. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, or on Twitter at Film Whiskey with an E. Or if you want to give us a call, our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, the phone number is 216-800-5923. Give us a call and let us know what you have to think about The Sixth Sense. Next week, we'll be back talking about the 2004 film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. 